There's a spirit in our land raising up the kind of man with a burning in his heart to be free. Like the preacher man of old, he can't be bought, he can't be sold. What did they preach? They preached liberty. Exercise of their God-given right Granted them at the time of their birth The right to speak their arms and pray Worship God on land and say From that law we will keep our people free Through the jury we'll guard our liberty They call the king into accounting For his disregard of law not to yield before his threats For God established rulers to protect the rights of man And ordained government to fit into his plan To maintain his people's liberty Liberty to exercise all their God-given rights Granted them at the time of their birth From that law, we will keep our people free. Through the jewelry, we'll guard our liberty. Today, we want to begin our broadcast by looking at the book of 2 Kings, the book of 2 Kings, where we have a, a situation uh, being told about or portrayed where an enemy king has it in for God's prophet, Elisha specifically. And it's a very interesting passage of Scripture because I believe it gives us insight into a factor that we, in our time that we're living in, we are not very well connected to. We are, are not really in possession of this type of understanding of what the God of Scripture really is all about. And as such, of course, what our status as the servants of the God of Scripture happens to be. So, in the book of Second Kings, the sixth chapter, we are reading about this situation where the Syrian king is wanting to, essentially, he's wanting to neutralize a force that is working against his tactical interest. Because Elisha has power, supernatural power, endowed upon him or bestowed upon him by the sovereign hand of God. And of course, this is something that the the world or the natural man doesn't understand. Paul said, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. And this is really our secret weapon in a state of affairs that really mankind has always been in and the people of God have always been in. But especially now, in this particular 
uh, critical, pivotal hour of history that we're in right now. You see, because of the technological capabilities of the enemies of truth and the servants of Satan, because the, the technological capabilities they possess are so overwhelming, often, at a cursory glance, it would appear that the people of God don't have any chance whatsoever to prevail over this massive opposition force, this overwhelming advantage that the enemy possesses in the natural sense. But when we understand what we're getting ready to read in 2 Kings, the sixth chapter, this gives us an edge, more than an edge. It gives us really the ultimate victory that is at our disposal if we will avail ourselves of the power and the capability that is at our fingertips. Very often, like the book of James says, you have not because you ask not, or because you ask amiss. Speaking, of course, of prayer and the power of prayer. And prayer is certainly powerful, but even beyond that power, there is a majestic degree and level of power that emanates from only one source, and that is the creator of this universe, who is our creator as well. And granted, he is the creator of the forces of evil also, men who have allowed their hearts to be turned toward darkness and have been content to wallow in their depravity and be the abject servants of Satan, not to mention, of course, those forces that we alluded to in a previous broadcast referenced in Ephesians 6.12, those forces of, of spiritual wickedness and darkness in high places. But what we're reading about here in 2 Kings chapter 6, uh, picking up at verse 13, it says, And he said, Go and spy where he is. Now, the, the person that is instructing his forces to go and spy would be that king, and the target of, of his efforts here would be Elisha. He wants to know where Elisha is because, because it has been revealed to him that Elisha, via supernatural power and understanding, an endowment from God, Elisha is serving as a means for Israel to be delivered from what would otherwise be the hostility and the, the forces of evil being arrayed against them. So he wants his contingency to go and spy where he, that being Elisha, is. He says that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Verse 14 then says, Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city about. Now, it kind of sounds there like he wants to do a little bit more than fetch him. But at any rate, that's what the scripture says. And then in verse 15, uh, we read, And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. 
And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? So this servant of Elisha was scared. He was petrified. He was worried sick. He could see that they were surrounded by this this menacing contingency of, of horses and chariots and soldiers, obviously. And he said to Elisha those words, How shall we do? Verse 16 then says, And he answered, in other words, Elisha answered his servant, and he said, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Then it says in verse 17, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. It says in verse 18, And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom ye seek. But he led them to Samaria. So what we have here is a situation where, obviously, when the eyes of the servant were open supernaturally, he was suddenly able to see what was not readily visible. Not readily visible from the dimensional perspective that the servant was relegated and confined to prior to the miraculous opening of his eyes, which enabled him to see into that other dimensional realm where God had positioned a superior number of chariots of fire. In other words, what we're dealing with here is an illustration of and an example of angelic hosts, supernatural beings, if you will, with powers that from an earthly and human standpoint and perspective are not of this world. And those supernatural powers, of course, in the hands of angelic beings that serve the God of Scripture, those supernatural powers are vastly superior to anything of an earthly nature or origin. So we can take this Scripture and we can extrapolate and we can understand that in our time as well, that the same God whom Elisha served, that same God is on the throne of the universe today. He is eternal, immortal, invisible, ever-living, without beginning and without end. There is no equal to his power, his ability, his knowledge. And that same God whom Elisha served, he is the God that we serve as well, the God of Scripture. Scripture, of course, is his divine revelation. It is his word, and it is all-powerful, 
and all authoritative. And in the pages of Scripture, we read this account and we can lay hold of it and we can project its import and its implications futuristically into our very present time of existence and know and understand and have faith that Almighty God is able and, of course, capable of marshalling the same type of force and power on our behalf. And, of course, there is no match for that power. He was able, the God of Scripture, to smite the enemy with blindness. He can do anything. Now, this is very important as a backdrop for what I want to talk about today, primarily, which is something that we call the territorial imperative. The territorial imperative. You see, our mission in this existence that has been given to us, that we have been gifted with, our mission is not to serve our own self-interest. Our mission and assignment is not to simply indulge our own desires and to seek out pleasure for ourselves, but rather our mission is to glorify God. The chief end of man is to glorify God, and we glorify him by being obedient to his word, to his instructions, to his law, to his commands. We, of course, in the Old Testament have the rendering of what's called the Mosaic Covenant of Law. The the people of God, the Israel people of God, came under the law of Moses. And, of course, there was no way that they could obey that law in any type of sense or semblance of perfection. They were to strive toward obedience and to do the best that they could. And, and of course, we know their track record is rather abysmal in terms of their failures to measure up to the standards of the law of God. And as such, they had to be remonstrated with, and they had to be punished. They had to be chastised. At times, they had to be allowed to be carried into bondage and captivity. But there was also a sacrificial system that was set in place by the God of Scripture, that there might be atonement for their sins. The Word of God tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so in the era of the Old Covenant, it was necessary for God's people to offer up sacrifices, blood sacrifices, animal sacrifices. Clean animals had to be sacrificed on the altar. And of course, at the time of the uh, Exodus, the Israel people desired to come out of Egypt that they might keep the Passover. God has his holy days, he has his festivals. Man has substituted his very crass and crude uh, replications or imitations of the holy days of God. And of course, we see them marked and typified by worldliness and carnality. But in the Passover that God ordained and prescribed and mandated for his people, and of course when they came out of Egypt, remember the blood was put over the doorpost and the angel of death passed over and they were spared. 
And Passover is a time to commemorate, to this day, by the way, it is in perpetuity, it is to commemorate this event, of course, and also to commemorate the ultimate blood sacrifice that was made for the people of God. And that was through the death of Christ, the perfect Passover lamb. He was sinless. He was spotless, without blemish. And he shed his blood that there might be an effective degree of remission of and payment for sin that it would actually eliminate the sting of death and it would constitute the ultimate victory over the grave, over death, and over sin. In the days of old prior to the advent of the Messiah and his, his sacrificial death and resurrection and ascension, in times of old, it was necessary for a literal lamb to be offered up as the Passover lamb at the Feast of Passover annually. Today, we need not sacrifice animals. In fact, to sacrifice animals today would, in many respects, be a blasphemous act because it would inevitably carry with it the connotation of insufficiency of the blood of our Messiah. So we have the sacrificial act by Christ, by Jesus Christ, of having died on the cross, having shed his blood, and it being offered up as a payment for the sins of the people of God. And this is a wondrous truth that, of course, constitutes the bedrock and the foundation of everything that we possess, everything that that we count as good and holy and righteous and worthy. And so again, our chief end is to glorify our Creator, to bring honor and glory to Him through obedience to His law, to His truth, and to His Word. This is what we must consecrate our lives toward. This is our ultimate purpose, our ultimate calling. Of course, one of the earliest commands that God gave to our father Adam was to be fruitful and to multiply. And in days of old, this used to be carried out by our ancestors. But in our modern time, in the last 50 to 100 years, there has been a great tapering off in terms of obedience to this command to be fruitful and to multiply. It is interesting to note that in a worldwide context, that those who are of Caucasian ancestry today are slightly less than 10% of the world's population. Just 50 years ago, instead of 10%, those of Caucasian heritage were one-third of the world's population. So in this very, very short relatively brief brief period of time, there has been an extreme diminishment of the number of our people proportional to the total number of people that inhabit the earth today. Of course, argumentation has been marshaled to the effect that 
the world is overpopulated. And of course, this simply isn't true. I heard someone over these airwaves make the statement yesterday, I believe, that everybody in the world could fit in the state of Texas. And the other individual on the broadcast said something to the effect that, yes, that would be very easy uh, to happen. In other words, it would, they would easily, the population of the earth would easily fit into the state of Texas. And in fact, what they did not say uh, during that commentary on that broadcast was that everybody in the world could fit in the city of Jacksonville, Florida. Now, the city of Jacksonville, Florida, actually, the city limits have been extended to include the entire territory of the county, Duval County, in Florida, northeast Florida. But the point being that everybody in the world could fit in Duval County, Florida. Now, they wouldn't have a whole lot of operating room uh, per individual or per capita, but the state of Texas, of course, is massively greater in size than Duval County. So if you put everybody in the world in the state of Texas, they would have a lot more room to operate individually. Now, it would not necessarily be a desirable uh, game plan to try to herd everybody in the world into the state of Texas. It's just merely an illustration of the fallacy that suggests or even states emphatically in the time that we're living in that the world is overpopulated. It is not overpopulated. But that argument has been used to tamp down the zeal and enthusiasm that people of our extended racial family would have otherwise had to proliferate in number and to continue to fulfill the tenets of the Abrahamic covenant, which God, of course, made an analogy between the descendants of Abraham back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 17 and the stars of the heaven or the sands on the beach. In other words, great, great and vast numbers. It was foretold in Genesis that, that Rebekah would be the mother of thousands of millions. In other words, billions. And it has been a hallmark of the true Israel people of God. Those, of course, who today are primarily represented in people of European stock and heritage and ancestry it is indicative or it is a hallmark of these people to be vast and great in number throughout history. And I might add as an aside that the counterfeit chosen people of God in the world today do not meet this criteria. They do not exhibit and manifest this characteristic, but rather, to the contrary, are, relatively speaking, quite small in their overall a numerical total. But once again, be fruitful and multiply was one of the, the initial early commands that God issued to his people. And so many other commands as well are given to the people. But among those commands and imperatives is to take dominion. If you are fruitful and you multiply and you are involved in the obedience to and keeping of the law of God, then quite naturally, your influence is going to be dominant. It is going to be superior to the influence of the people who serve the false gods of this world. And by the way, make no mistake about it. 
All of the other gods in this world are false gods. There is only one true God. And the biblical Christian faith is without any equivocation and beyond any shadow of doubt, it is the vastly superior religion. It is the only true religion. All other religions are false religions. And I use the term religion just to reference that realm of man's existence that focuses on the sublime and on the the truths that transcend and go beyond this earthly terrestrial plane that we exist on. So the taking of dominion is fundamental and foundational to the mission that has been ordained for us as the people of God. And there was a time, of course, when our ancestors were relatively efficient in terms of taking dominion. The colonial era in Africa was a vivid manifestation of an illustration of our ancestors, the true Israel people of God, taking dominion in this world. They went into, with their uh, superior capabilities and technologies, they went into Africa, which was a continent exceedingly rich with resources and the potential for wealth, but at the same time was a continent inhabited by a people who were not proficient in regard to the taking of dominion and the exploitation of the resources put there on the African continent by the sovereign hand of God. When European man came to Africa and began to utilize superior understanding and knowledge and capability, lo and behold, the African continent was transformed to a very significant degree. And the native peoples that were in the African continent upon the arrival of the Europeans, they were given the ability to experience a modicum of civilization which had prior to that time not been a part of their life. Their existence on the African continent had been extremely primitive and marked by characteristics that are routinely exhibited amongst primitive peoples, characteristics that are not reflective of the divine essence of the God of Scripture. And so the people of Africa were, in a very, very significant sense, they were benefited by the permeation of their territorial mass, by the influence of the Europeans, who also brought their Christian religion to the people of Africa. Now, there are competing schools of thought, theologically speaking, in the Christian world in a host of doctrinal areas. And in the area of salvation, there are competing schools of thought that go under the general headings of Calvinism or Arminianism. Calvinism, of course, 
is a theological strain that emphasizes election, predestination, what in theology is called soteriology. The Arminian school of thought is very much slanted and directed toward the concept of free will, man's upward reach to God versus God's downward reach to man. According to the hyper-Arminian theology that is very prevalent today, it's all up to man. It is up to man to accept Christ. It is up to man to go to the vast and far reaches of the earth, translating the word of God into languages so primitive that there are not even words in those languages to do even remote minuscule justice to the lofty precepts of Scripture. But nevertheless, the hyper-Arminian construct compels men to go with good intentions, I might add, by and large, but it compels them to go to vast and extraordinary degrees of effort to assume responsibility as men for the conversion of the masses of the earth to the Christian faith. And of course, many centuries elapsed in the olden days where the emphasis of Western Christianity was not diverted in this direction. There was not a consuming preoccupation with taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to primitive and uncivilized areas and portions of the planet where people did not even have any semblance of nationhood. You see, nationhood was something that was instilled within primitive peoples by the influence of European man coming into their midst. After all, a nation involves having some level of structured governance. It involves having established, defined, and protected borders. It involves having common culture and language. In other words, it involves a level of sophistication that was not present on the African continent prior to the arrival of European man. But again, the colonial era is an example of taking dominion. Now, in the aftermath of World War II, when the globalist system began to flex its muscle and take over the affairs of, of the world and certainly the affairs of individual nations, including America, the West backed away from and they abdicated their colonial uh, responsibility that had come into existence under the auspices of their infusion of their culture and technology and religion and every other uh, aspect of their existence into the otherwise previously primitive setting of the African continent. This, of course, was all abdicated after World War II, and the primitive peoples were left to their devices to revert back to the state that they were in prior to the arrival of European man. Now, of course, the Western powers retained and maintained uh, some level of paternalistic-type oversight, even though officially they had withdrawn and given the control 
to the indigenous peoples there on the dark continent. But as time has progressed, Western man has increasingly withdrawn and a vacuum, of course, has been created. The nations today, so-called of Africa, continue to exist basically running on the residual energy and power that they have derived from the, the era of the colonial powers being there present and, of course, orchestrating a significant degree of order and efficiency among these peoples. So a vacuum has been created by our withdrawal, and that vacuum is being filled increasingly by communist China, this superpower country that has, of course, been built and constructed economically and otherwise by Western money and Western power and Western technology. The Chinese, of course, are vast in numbers. They exceed more than one and a half billion in terms of their total population. And they are also quite adept at replication and emulation when they are allowed the keys to the candy store, so to speak, when they are given the patents and given the blueprints and given the technologies of the West. They are very good at reverse engineering. They are very, very good at replicating and emulating what has been placed into their hands. And so they are now uh, able to boast a very, very a noteworthy military machine, a space program. They have mining cap capabilities and oil drilling capabilities, and they are able to do things to a, a great degree on par with the Western powers and their technologies. And they are increasingly taking over Africa and taking control of the vast resources and wealth and, and mineral wealth and strategic metallic wealth of Africa. And this is all by design, by the way. All of this is part of the calculated plan of surrender of our extended racial family to the forces on this planet, the people on this planet who are not the people of God, who are not the elect and chosen people of the God of Scripture. But again, the taking of dominion is something that our people in the past have been rather adept at and have done uh, quite a proficient job in the exercise of, and even to this very moment in time, as we have a demographic seismic shifts going on, it is very common for people of the Caucasian race, as they find themselves being surrounded and as they find themselves being increasingly overtaken by people who are of different ancestries, racially and ethnically speaking, as our people find themselves being surrounded and dispossessed and supplanted, very often they simply quietly move to a different location, up the road a ways, uh, far enough away to put a buffer zone between them and the problems that have ensued as a result of these demographic shifts. This has been called white flight. But of course, white flight is precipitated by white fright. As people of our extended racial family increasingly realize that their very lives and existence are being threatened 
by violent crime being perpetrated against them and the dangers that are inherent in the, the types of, of societies that are built and developed once these seismic demographic shifts begin to happen, they simply resort to white f- flight. And they will uh, transfer their assets, assets and their presence uh, to a location far enough away to where they have a buffer zone, and then they will proceed to do what they are so good at doing, which is building, building uh, shopping malls, building uh, housing subdivisions, building office complexes, building industrial park areas, etc., etc., building schools, building churches. They will do all of this in a very, very short period of time and develop a whole new a very opportune and, and, and very sophisticated manifestation of the type of civilization that they left behind, which, of course, once they have departed, there is something that is also called brain drain. You see, sophisticated machinery and complex societal constructs require people who are capable of operating those levers of power. And once the people who possess those capabilities, who are the same people that were the progenitors of these capabilities and these technologies and these accoutrements of civilization. Once they're gone, there's nobody to run the machinery. And so, very quickly, dilapidation ensues and things deteriorate. And what evolves, of course, becomes very undesirable. Real estate values plummet, et cetera, et cetera. And so, once again... Something happens in the new territory that people of our extended racial family have cultivated and developed, and they, they slowly begin to realize that they're once again being permeated and penetrated, and they're being surrounded, and all of the, the negative, debilitating uh, facets of that phenomenon begin to kick in. And so, once again, they have to quietly uh, pick up and move and engage in this white flight again. And so this cyclical process goes on and on and on until there's nowhere else to go. And in many respects, that's where we are today. But taking dominion is nevertheless something that is required of our people. We have been given that ability, that inheritance, that endowment. Like God who is created and we are created in his image, we have these, these characteristics of these abilities And so we find ourselves at this present time surrounded on the verge of being outnumbered. We find ourselves in increasingly perilous and potentially dreadful circumstances where we have virtually nowhere to turn, no place to hide, no place to migrate to. There are no more new frontiers. And so we must face this reality and we must contemplate a potential solution and then in the methodical, calculating manner that is indicative of our ability overall as a people, we must begin to plan and strategize as to what we can do to affect our survival. For after all, If we fail to provide for the survival of our progeny, then according to Scripture, we are worse than infidels.
And of course, that is a very, very damning charge to be levied against somebody or a very, very serious charge to have levied against us to be worse than infidels. Well, in order to avoid that charge, we must make preparations and we must take precautions and we must establish a viable blueprint for action in order to affect the survival of our posterity. And that's where the territorial imperative comes into play. It is an imperative. We must, we must pursue and find an avenue and a haven and a sanctuary for the continuing existence and survival of our people. We must do that. It is not an option. It is not a suggestion. It is absolutely mandatory from God's perspective and in his eyes that we do that very thing. And so how do we go about such a task? Well, it's interesting that in the era of Trump, one of the issues, if not the primary issue that he was accelerated toward and advanced into a powerful position through was the issue of the need to stop the influx of illegal immigration from and through the southern, the porous southern border of America. Trump was the champion of the concept of erecting a wall to protect the country, to safeguard the country from undesirable, unlawful, illegal immigration. Today, of course, we know that with the changing of the guard that was obtained and effected through the stealing of the presidential election in 2020, in, in the year that we have just completed, we know that, that as a result of this changing of the guard, that the floodgates have been opened wide again. The caravans that are, are coming up through Latin America have a mentality of America or bust. They're coming. And the new administration, the new criminal, illicit, corrupt, wicked administration in our country is rolling the red carpet out for more and more and more teeming multitudes of illegal non-European aliens. And of course, Trump rode to power on the concept of building a wall and safeguarding the border. And inherent within the strategy of building a wall is the notion that we are better off if we prevent people from further sullying our territory with the customs that derive from civilizations, if you will, that are not predicated on Christian premises and Christian foundations. So if a nation, America, for instance, as large as it is from sea to shining sea, if America will be benefited by sealing off the border and preventing people who don't belong here from coming, then would it not also stand to reason that a smaller territory, be it a state or even a county, 
would also derive great benefit from sealing off its borders and preventing undesirable people to take up residence, to begin to inhabit that territorial jurisdiction, be it a state or even something as small as a county. Well, this obviously is a rhetorical question that I am posing quite obviously. It is to the benefit of a geopolitical territory to guard and protect its borders and make sure that the wrong element of people are not moving into the territory and taking up residence there. This is fundamental to the survival of a territory. Now, if we did some type of study to determine how many counties in America manifested or exhibited the demographic makeup and composition that America as a whole did, let's say in 1965, which was 85 to 90% Caucasian. If we did a study to determine how many counties had that type of percentage in their demographic statistics, it would be interesting to find out what the ratio would be of counties of that composition to the counties within the nation that are the opposite, that are overwhelmingly constituted and made up of people who are not of European heritage and ancestry. We know that all the big cities in America are predominantly non-Caucasian or non-white, and some to a vast extent and degree. The nation's capital, for instance, Washington, D.C., is overwhelmingly African in its racial and demographic composition. But cities throughout the nation, big cities, uh, Detroit, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York City, big megapolises such as those, as well as, as medium-tier population cities, all of these cities are marked by this consistent characteristic of being overwhelmingly non-European in their makeup and composition. Of course, the, the rural counties of America are quite the opposite, and a great many of them are overwhelmingly Caucasian in terms of their demographic makeup and composition. So it is a central tenet of the agenda for the territorial imperative to begin work and effort toward the fulfillment of this imperative in a county or counties plural that can boast the demographic composition, that statistic of 50 years ago in America, 85 to 90 percent, if not greater, of a percentage of population that is Caucasian or European in its origins. We can, of course, find quite a few counties throughout the country that meet that criteria, but then other factors also are relevant and important. And, of course, most importantly, the God of Scripture who leaves nothing to chance, who has every detail in the palm of his hand, that God, obviously, would prefer, doubtlessly, certain areas for his people to flourish in and seek to take dominion in as opposed to other areas. And there would be 
of course, logical and practical and tactical considerations involved in this equation. And it's not a precise science by any stretch of the imagination. But mountains are very favorable for survival and for tactical defense. Abundant and plentiful sources of fresh drinking water are also a prerequisite for a good survival territory. And, of course, other factors such as mild climate, long-growing seasons, things of that nature are important. Now, there is no place in territorial America that is perfect or devoid of any negatives or deficiencies. But it is my studied belief and conclusion that the southeastern corner of the state of Tennessee is the best location for our people to concentrate their energies and their resources in terms of building up a presence in a territory where in the futuristic sense, but not too far down the road, there would be the possibility through well-established electoral processes for people of this ilk and this basic profile and description for them to be able in a completely lawful, completely legitimate fashion, exert sufficient influence in the territory of which I'm speaking to become a very, very prevalent and influential force for the good. You see, even in this territory that I'm speaking of, which happens to be, by the way, where I call home, even within this territory, there are, there are aspects of, of the, the makeup and composition of the territory and the attitudes and behaviors of uh, people therein that are not consistent with principles of, of Holy Scripture. Even though, traditionally, we're in the Bible Belt, in fact, some might argue the buckle of the Bible Belt, and historically there has been great favorability towards Christian ways and institutions. But I merely want to point out that, that no place is perfect, and the traditions of past generations aren't necessarily automatically adopted by the new and younger crop of individuals growing up in an area. So some remedial education is necessary in an area even such as which I speak. But that is not implausible to be able to carry out or enter into because the law of the God of Scripture is certainly written in the hearts of his people. And there is an inherent capability and propensity to understand the truths of Almighty God inherent within our people if it can just be touched, activated, and energized. Scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But how will they hear without a preacher, it says in the book of Romans. And so we, of course, need to understand that in pursuit of this territorial imperative, we have enormous responsibility on our shoulders to be a beacon of light, to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, to be agents of redemption and restoration and revival and resuscitation, to try to help our wayward kinsmen understand and, and un be able to delineate and document where their ancestors have gone astray. Because remember, we are all laboring under a set of circumstances whereby our fallen carnal sin nature is ceaselessly operative and active trying to subvert us 
and bring us down and render us ineffective. So we must proceed with great humility in our actions towards the fulfillment of the territorial imperative. It is common whenever a people of a community find out that there's some outside group, quote-unquote, trying to come in and, and quote-unquote, take over. Uh, this can uh, very quickly result in a, a great deal of, of resistance being engendered on the part of the people who are native to the region. And so we want to avoid that at all costs. We never, ever want to project some type of impression that would be consistent with, with some of the well-known uh, circumstances in our country where some truly offbeat and strange group tried to take over a, a city or a county or such as that. Uh, many people remember the, the case of the Bhagwan Rajneesh in Antelope, Oregon. That was a much publicized case with, with a lot of circus-type uh, theatrics and, and uh, dramatic developments, and of course it ultimately resulted in a, a big, a gigantic fiasco, you know, that made for great stories in the news and headlines. Of course, the Bhagwan, he was uh, somewhat typical of your uh, gurus of Eastern mysticism who preach uh, a lifestyle of, of plain simplicity while at the same time accruing unto themselves great wealth. And in the case of the Bhagwan, I believe, if I remember correctly, uh, he had a whole fleet of Rolls Royces. And, and again, it was cartoonish. So we want to, to look at case histories where people have tried to go into an area but have not done it the right way and have instead frightened and intimidated uh, the people of the area. We want to avoid that at all costs and let people know that, that all we're interested in is doing what our forefathers did, which was establish some perimeter and barrier of defense against the forces that will otherwise completely overwhelm us and subject us and our progeny to slavery under an atheistic, communistic, globalistic system. That is what we're fighting against, my dear friends. And so this territory that I am referring to for the territorial imperative, it's nothing more than an idea. There is nothing subversive about it. But I have, over the years, I have referred to it as Republica, R-E-P-U-B-L-I-C-A. It's an idea, I believe, whose time has come. So I want to leave you uh, with this thought today. We will try to develop this theme to a much greater extent. And I will say to you as well that it is already underway. The project is already underway. The idea is already germinating and taking root. And it could be a very, very exciting opportunity for people who think the way we do people who yearn for the restoration of the traditions and the foundations of the God of Scripture. It could be very exciting for us to be involved in this in the days ahead and look forward to the time when, like Elisha, praying that God would unveil the, the in the sense of the visage in front of his servant, the ability to see what was out there, that we might look forward to that type of miraculous manifestation, not only to embolden and empower our people in the days ahead, but also to look forward to the deliverance and the protection and the empowerment that would come to a people who were aligned with the truth of God, serving him according to his timetable relative to his uh, presiding over the affairs of this world and of the people that inhabit this world. 
It's a very, very exciting proposition for those who have the ability to conceptualize this vision. And remember, Proverbs 29 tells us that where there's no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Now, very quickly, before I give our address and phone number and email, I want to also remind you that what we're talking about here is the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 24. Go ahead and read it if you want, the 24th chapter of Matthew. It's referenced in there, the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. Well, that's what we are seeking after, a city whose builder and maker is God. Yes, we are ultimately looking to the eternal kingdom, but in the here and now, we want to take dominion and establish God's kingdom here on earth. What better quest and objective could there be? And for there to be a kingdom, there must be a king, and we have one. His name is Jesus Christ, of course, Yahshua in the Hebrew. Uh, We must have a territory to have a kingdom. Well, again, uh, the territory has been largely overrun by the forces of evil, but we can do something about that, my friends. We can retake the territory. Remember, the Israelites had to fight for the promised land. They had to fight many very, very bloody battles, in fact. That could be in our future, God forbid. Very often, if you're willing to fight, you won't have to. But you must be ready to, if necessary, when the time is right. So there must be a, a, a actual territory. There must be a king. We have both of those. Uh, obviously, our king is, is there, and uh, you know that this is uh, ironclad, and this is indisputable. No king but King Jesus. That was the motto of the American Revolution. But our territory uh, can be that of which I speak, the area that I am alluding to. And then, of course, there must be a law. We have that, the laws and instructions that our God has given us. And then there must be subjects. There must be people. And those who are the descendants of the people of the book, people of European heritage and ancestry, are the people who inhabit this territory and people who are coming. So this is an exciting proposition, I believe. Write to us at P.O. Box 274, if you so desire, Etowah, E-T-O-W-A-H, Tennessee, 37331, or you can call us at 423-241-7902, or email us at voiceofliberty1776 at gmail.com. This is Rick Tyler saying goodbye for now, and may God bless and protect you. We need such preacher men today to show our people the way to redeem their lost liberty. The fires of hell cannot prevail against one man who'll take a stand from the pulpit, expose tyranny, and teach his people liberty. Liberty to exercise all their God-given rights, granted them at the time of their birth. The right to speak, bear arms, and pray, worship God on land and say, From bad law, we will keep our people free. Through the jury, we'll guard our liberty. Liberty to exercise all their God-given rights, granted them at the time of their birth. The right to speak, bear arms, and pray, worship God on land and say, This jury says, not guilty we choose to acquit the state was wrong to charge him this law is not fit for a people who love their liberty